You might have noticed that, that my friends and partners in ministry, Roger and Chris and Lori and Lois just stepped out and probably some others. You know, they, the first Sunday of the month, there's a team of people to get down the hallway and just pray the whole time we're in here during this time that God would work in our hearts. They're down there praying right now that, that we would be sensitive to what the Lord wants to do. You know, there were a team of people here this morning that set this place up. Did all, I mean, they got here early this morning and did everything, got it all ready to roll. It's fun. It's a joy. It's an adventure to, to be part of what God is doing. I do want to say this. I ask you to be praying for our leadership. You know that we are, we're facing a bit of an unknown right now, but that's okay because God is in charge. And even today, pray for us because our leadership team is, is we, are, we are seeking the Lord's wisdom and direction and, and looking at a, a, a potential interim facility for us right now. Pray for us today. And in that regard, actually today, we need, we need to tear this place down in a hurry after church today, okay? Because, because a whole team of us need to be out of here and down the road by one o'clock and so, so this afternoon, when, when we get done here in about an hour, okay, I'll try to be done at noon, um, let's, let's all work together and knock out, tear down, so, so those that need to be on the way can do that. How many remember the television show, The Odd Couple? Remember that? You probably don't realize that, but that was actually designed after me, me and my brother. Did you know that? I remember watching that show, what was it, 70s? I think it was based upon a, a, a play or something, right? And it was a movie that came out recently. But um, my brother and I were, were the incarnation of that television program. We really were. I have a brother two and a half years younger than me, and um, we shared a bedroom almost all of our lives growing up in our, in our house. And um, one of us was like Oscar. I mean, you know, pile of clothes you just kind of slept in and then you'd you know put on your clean clothes I don't know how you'd know where they were but somehow in this pile was clean clothes and dirty clothes and you know they they acted as blankets and you know and all that kind of stuff and and the other one of us was was very like meticulous like everything had to be perfect and in in a line right The, the meticulous one one time um for Christmas his parents got him this little footlocker okay he still owns it today, actually. It's a little silver footlocker. And what this little weirdo did at like 10 years of age is he would open it up and he took egg cartons. You know what those are, right? And cut those into just a dozen sections and lined the inside of this little footlocker so, so that he could put little things in each one of those little compartments and close that thing down and slide underneath of his bed. I was a freak child. I mean, what is wrong with me? You know, are, are you like that at all? Like, do you like things to be a certain way? Is that, is that you? Or are you more like Oscar? You know, it takes all types. And, and I'm not, you know, I don't mean to tear down you if you're Felix or Oscar. That's, that's fine. You grow out of it, okay? You grow out of it. Come look at my car or at my shop. You certainly grow out of it with age. But still to this day, that sort of tendency comes out in me. And where it really shows itself, my control freak nature, is when I plan on doing something, and for one reason or another, I, it can't happen. I want to be someplace, and I'm late. <sighs> Sets me off. 
okay? I, I, I have something set up and I want it to be that way. Somebody messes with it, sets me off. I have a plan for I'm going to do this, this, and this, and for some reason it doesn't work. Anybody else, does this sound familiar to you, about you? Oh, yeah, there's a few of us out there, a few of us out there. So I guess the question is for us, is God allowed to interrupt our lives? That's the question. Is the Lord Jesus allowed to interrupt your life? The Bible says in James, you ought not to say, I'll be here at such and such time or at this place at such and such time because you don't know what tomorrow holds. Instead, what's James tell us that we should say? Lord willing. Lord willing. So I try to make a practice of that. I try to make, and, and it's, it's not a cliche. It's not like, you know, a little add-on. But sometimes people will ask me, hey, you want to meet me at such and such place at 7 o'clock? And you might notice that all the times I'll say, I'll be there, Lord willing. I'm not just saying that to a cliche James 4. I'm not, that's not what's going on. It's, it's almost like a, it's like this self sort of counseling thing that I'm working on, okay, that I'm trying to remind myself I'm not in charge of my life. Today I want to go to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, if you want to turn there. And what we're going to look at today is what happens when God interrupts a plan. And what in God's plan is allowed to change and what isn't allowed to change? So where is there flexibility in God's plan? And where is there no flexibility in God's plan? Some of us, we swing the whole opposite way and we're like, ah, oh, whatever, whatever. Listen, we can't be whatever about everything. Some things in God's plan must be as they are. In other areas, we need to have flexibility and allow God to be God. You're in Matthew chapter 4. I want to say some words about Matthew chapter 4 and um, this, this sort of section of Scripture that really are going to be relevant to our entire study of the gospel of Matthew, okay? Yes. And now, you know, when, when a pastor grabs one of these, okay, you better watch out because something's coming on the screen that you're going to need to be able to see. Can it, will it work? In maybe a little bit. Yeah, there it goes. All right. So Matthew chapter four, let's start reading together. Okay, I'll read aloud, but you follow along with me at verse number 10. All right, and we're going to read through verse number 17. Then Jesus said to Satan, we just had the third temptation, the third that Matthew records. Then Jesus said to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him, Jesus. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that when what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, 
the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want to do some kind of introduction here to much of your New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew. And it may, sound, it may feel a little bit like a classroom, but it is very important for us to understand what is going on here in Matthew chapter 4. First of all, you know that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels. And the reason why they're called the synoptic gospel is because they are very, very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke definitely were aware of one another when they were writing these gospels. We don't know which of those three was written first. My opinion is that the gospel of Mark was, but it's a debatable matter. But there's a lot of material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that, are, that is shared, that, that there's overlap. At times, Matthew and Mark have verbatim the same words, the same structure. But other times, they branch off from one another. Now, the Gospel of John, though, is completely different. It's the same Jesus. But John... John wrote probably at least 20 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and, John, and Luke, were, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were, wrote, were written. So John wrote maybe 30 years later. And John, when he wrote, John being the best friend of Jesus, John filled in the gaps. He filled in some gaps for us. So there's an advantage to reading all the Gospels. They're all necessary. Now, Mark, when you read Mark, Mark is quick and to the point. Quick and to the point. Like when you read Mark, most of the gospel of Mark deals with the last week of Jesus' life. The majority of it is just the last week. Luke is very, very deliberate. Luke did a lot of research. And, and Luke chronicles the life of Jesus. We've got the birth. We've got the baptism. We've got early years of Jesus. We, we've got all the, I mean, most of, of Jesus' life is depicted there in Luke. John, he fills in the gaps, as I already said. But Matthew, oh, Matthew. Matthew is, is unique. And I want, I want us to see this and feel it today. The reason why Matthew is so unique is Matthew is writing his gospel with a heavy, heavy Hebrew Jewish background. Let me tell you some of the things that, that show us that. And we're going to see it today in our passage. Matthew quotes the Old Testament 50 different times. 50 times he quotes the Old Testament. And the number of allusions to the Old Testament are honestly too great to number. I mean, there, there's so many times where he's alluding to the Old Testament. Matt, when Matthew, you don't see this in your, in your English New Testament, but when Matthew quotes the Old Testament, he is clearly quoting from a Hebrew Old Testament. Now, here's why that's significant. In Jesus' day, most all of the followers of, of God didn't even speak Hebrew. 
didn't speak Hebrew. Most of them, if they were going to pull out an Old Testament scroll, it would be written in Greek. They called it the Septuagint. But Matthew, when he quotes, he quotes from the Hebrew Bible. Very significant. So we will see many connections from the Gospel of Matthew to the Old Testament. And here is Matthew's message. Here's what it is. There is a king. There is a king. His name is Jesus, and he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one sent to rule over all men, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, not just in this period, but for all of eternity. And there's coming a day when Jesus will return in all of his glory with all of his angels. That's what Matthew says. And he will come and rule from Jerusalem as a king of the world. Now, we can't hardly understand king. We think of president, and we're like, oh, man, that is just, I don't like that. Listen, this is a good king, a righteous king, a loving king, a king so good, a king so loving that he died for his subjects. Mm. A king so great that he rose victorious from death. He is a good and great king. That's who this Jesus is. Now, one of the things that's going to happen, this is where I give out that little pointer. One of the things that's going to happen, we're going to see it today. We're going to see it today. There's going to be a distinction made in, about the land of Israel. And that's what this is supposed to, this is, that's a, this is a picture of, of the land that Jesus would have lived in. And I want you to see that Jerusalem is down here to the south of this area. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And between Jerusalem and Galilee, where the city of Capernaum is, is the area of Samaria. And I want to talk about the north of Israel versus the south of Israel. The south, what city is in the south? Jerusalem, that's right. The south was the religious center of Israel. In the south was the temple. In the south were the Sadducees. This was the ruling class of Israel. This is where the important people were. This is where the religious people were. This is where the people of nobility were. If you wanted to be holy, you went south. This is where the, the temple and all of its glory was. This is where the Sadducee system was, was focusing on and, and was stationed out of. And the Pharisees loved to claim some kind of connection to Jerusalem. But up north, up north in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, this was the commercial area. This is where the tax collectors and sinners lived. One guy named Matthew lived up there. This is where you went to get rich. It's where you went to get away from religion. It's where you went to rebel against Judaism. This is where the zealots were. This is where those that wanted to overthrow the Roman government were. The Jerusalem people, they fell right in the line with Rome and said, we just need things to be safe. The Galilean people wanted to overthrow the government. The saying was, if you wanted to be holy, you went south. If you wanted to be rich, you went north. Of the 12 disciples, 
11 of them were from the land of Galilee. One was from Jerusalem. His name, you might guess it, Judas Iscariot. Hmm. You see, there was this distinction. There was this, this boundary. And between them lied Samaria. And if you were going to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, you went this way. You crossed the Jordan River, and you cross this way in the Galilee because no good Jewish person would cross through Samaria. Galilee, full of Gentiles. Mixed breed people. The scourge of the society. The ones that you avoided were the Galileans. Verse number 12 Now when he, being Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay, there's more I got to tell you. There's more I have to tell you. So let's have another little chart. Something very interesting about Matthew. Matthew does not follow a strict chronological walk through the life of Jesus. Luke very much did. Matthew did not. Matthew wrote more thematically. He didn't really express, he didn't chronologically walk through the life of Jesus. He gave themes of what Jesus did. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we will have the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? And in Matthew chapter 23 and 24, we'll have the theme of Jesus encountering and, and coming against the Pharisees. We have themes. In Matthew chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, we'll have the parables of Jesus. Matthew recorded themes. Now, what's so significant about your Bible? Look at verse number 12. Then the, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he being Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. Now, in my Bible, from the end of verse 11 to the verse number 12 is a space this big. Yours too, right? Maybe this big, okay? That space represents over a year of time. Over a year of time goes between verse 11 and 12. So what happens in that year? What happens in that year? Well, John fills in the gaps. Follow along with me. In Matthew chapter four, in Matthew four, verses one through 11, we have the temptation of Jesus. And Jesus is victorious over Satan. Jesus could not have sinned. He is God. God knew that. Jesus knew that. Satan did not, and neither did you. And so that's why we have the temptation of Christ depicted for us, explained to us. Jesus knew going in, I can't sin. I am God. I am am righteousness At its basic level, Satan didn't know that, so Satan tempted him. But Jesus was victorious over temptation and modeled for us how we too can be victorious over temptation. But after that, a whole host of things happened that you know in your Bible. Jesus declared, or John declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Jesus called five of the disciples, James, John, Peter, Andrew, Philip, Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus cleansed the temple. Jesus had that great discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember that? Where he said, for God so loved the world, that gave his only begotten son, who never believed in him, should not hear his everlasting life. Whew, that was quick. That happened here, after verse 11, before verse number 12. 
Jesus moved into Samaria. Huh. In John chapter 4, he says, I have to go through Samaria. And so Jesus went through Samaria and met a woman there, right? Who, by the way, just prior to Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman, guess who happened to be in town baptizing? That's right, John. John had gone up into Samaria and was baptizing, and then Jesus came right behind him. Hmm. It's almost like John was what? Preparing the way. Jesus met the Samaritan woman. There was, a, some, there, was a, there was a revival in Samaria. Many people came to Christ. Jesus then left and went to Galilee. That happened all in verse number 12. And then Jesus in Capernaum, and we see what happens here. And after that, we see Jesus in Cana in chapter 4. A lot happens here in this passage. Now, the reason why I want you to see that is because we are going to look at this short account, about maybe five or six verses. And from this, we are going to draw some conclusions about life and how we are to live life. And I want to challenge you, before we get back to Matthew chapter 4, to consider this verse that I have up on the screen here. It's in Matthew chapter 11. And here's what it says. Jesus speaking now. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The reason I want to pick out this verse because I want, to, I want you to see one phrase. Learn from Jesus. Today we want to learn what can change. And what cannot change? There are things in life that can change. And we gotta hold loosely, folks. We gotta hold. Some of you are just like me at 12 years old, and you hold grip. I mean, it's tight. Come into my bedroom when I'm 12 years old and cross over the masking tape. Yeah, I literally had masking tape down the center of my room, just like the Brady Bunch. That's where I got the idea. Cross, cross the tape in my room and watch these fists raise. That's how some of us are. We hold on. We have a plan. We, we know what's going to happen and don't mess with it. Listen, believe it or not, that is not the way Jesus lived his life. We need to see it today. And learn from him. Some things can change. Some things must remain the same. Four life principles today from the life of Jesus. First one is this. This cannot change. We must operate in the power of the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit, we have to live our lives there. We don't have time to go into it, but just look at chapter 4, verse number 1. Again, we saw this last week, but it says here that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus Christ lived... The perfect human, human life. He is the example of what humanity is supposed to be. He's the picture of what God intends for you. And he lived empowered by God's spirit. Just like you and me. Jesus is 100% man. Don't sell him short and tell yourself, well, Jesus could do that because he is God. 
Now, there are some things that only God and only Jesus could do. Turning water into wine. Feeding the 5,000. I understand all that. But here's the temptation. What I'm going to share with you in just a minute, some of you are going to say, well, yeah, Jesus could do that. Because, I mean, after all, he's Jesus. As if that takes away your burden to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. The amazing thing about this is that this was, this was foretold long before. Listen to Isaiah 42, verse number one. Listen what it says. The reference is Isaiah 42, one. Behold my servant. This is God speaking. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen Messiah, Christ, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. If you are in Christ today, If you have put your trust in Jesus, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He desires to control your life. He is willing to fill you and to direct you. Jesus was fully willing to say, Spirit of God, lead me. Lead me. Are you? Matthew chapter 4, verse number 12. I want you to see in verse number 12 that Jesus is absolutely submissive to the Father. He is submissive to the Father. See what it says. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, remember, a year has passed, and this is how we know. This is how we know. A year had passed since verse number 11, and John has been arrested in Jerusalem. So there is, a, there is now a, a time of, of opposition to John. Herod has come and arrested John. Jesus and John are preaching the same message. So Jesus is like, okay, I have to leave. I have to leave. This is Jerusalem he's in. And it says here that he withdrew into Galilee. Now let me tell you about this word because it is amazing. This word withdrawal, it doesn't mean run. It doesn't mean scurry away. It's a military term. It's a military term. And here's what it means. It means a planned pulling away from the battle lines to set up another line of defense. That's what it means. So Jesus here in Jerusalem, opposition comes. John is arrested and Jesus says, I see him now going back into the office with the disciples. Okay, they got this big picture of Israel. You know, they're looking at it like, what are we going to do? John the Baptist has been arrested. Let's strategize and go to Galilee. All the disciples, what, what, back to Galilee? Yes, let's go. He was completely submissive to the Father. Submissive to the Father. Listen to John chapter six. John six, verse 38 and 39. Hear what this says. For I have come down from heaven Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's Jesus speaking. He says, I'm not here to accomplish my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus left Jerusalem and went straight through Galilee And as he went, was left awake of revival. Folks, I got to ask, 
we have to ask ourselves, are we submissive to the Father in this way? Are we, are we, do we say to God, not my will, but yours be done? Do with me what you may. I have been bought with a price. I'm not my own. I was a slave to sin, and you redeemed me. And so now I am yours, and I am a slave to righteousness. So my life is yours. My family is yours. My children are yours. My dollars are yours. My house is yours. My time is yours. My calendar is yours. My freedom is yours. I am submissive to the Father. I will love her. I will love my wife. I will love my kids. I will remain in this home. It's not my will. I'll stay at this job. Keep pointing them to Christ. I'll stay in this building as long as you'll let me. But you send me out of here, I'm going to follow you in obedience because you are my God. Jesus wasn't chased out of Jerusalem. He strategically withdrew and went to the land that no righteous man should go to. He went to Galilee. And one of the first things he did is bumped into this thieving, no good for nothing accountant named Matthew and said, follow me. And he went. Then he went down to the, down to the river, down to the, down to the lake, found a fisherman and said, come, I will make you fishers of men. He went up the road. He bumped into a doctor, said, Luke, let's go. He went around the land, you guys, seeking those who were ready to be submissive to the will of God. And they went to Galilee. Now, let's talk about it, okay? They left Nazareth. So, so Jesus now goes to Capernaum. He goes to Nazareth. You know what happened in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 describes it. Jesus goes into the synagogue. Remember this? Opens up the scroll. Reads Isaiah. He says, behold, this day, this is fulfilled. And what they do in Nazareth? Run him out of town. Okay? So now he leaves Nazareth. And he went and lived in Capernaum. Wow. John says he had a house in Capernaum. Interesting. He's in Capernaum now by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that when what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then there's this quote, as Matthew does so often. And this is very significant to us. If you know to look at your little text note down at the bottom, okay, you'll see where this reference is. It's in Isaiah 9. You might be wise to turn there. If you can go quickly, keep your finger in Matthew 4. And go see Isaiah 9. Let me, while you turn it, let me tell you about prophecy, how this works. Isaiah shares a prophecy about the Messiah. That he will be in this land of, of Zebulun and Naphtali. The, Isaiah expresses this. And bring light there. But prophecy, now hear this. Because some of you get all pulled into this whole prophecy. Thing. Listen to what prophecy is about. And I don't have time to explain this much. So listen quick. Prophecy is less about prediction and it's more about confirmation. Prophecy is less about prediction. And it's more about confirmation. God revealed through Isaiah that the Messiah would be in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
And that doesn't mean that every Tom, Dick, and Harry that happens to be in Zebulun and Naphtali is the Messiah. That's not what that means. But what it means is when you see him there in the land of Galilee, in Galilee of the Gentiles, notice it says that, the end of verse 15, the end of verse number one, in the Galilee of Gentiles, bingo, whoa, confirmed, this is God's Messiah because this is what he does. Now let's see what it says to us about this land and how we are to be aligned with God's word. This land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, it's verse 15, if you're Isaiah, it's verse number nine. The way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is a land where good Jewish people aren't meant to go. This is not where religious people are. This isn't where they're supposed to be. Isaiah here picks up. Now, one of the things that happens when Matthew quotes Isaiah, it's called a free quotation. There may be some words that are a little different, okay? But he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's connecting us with Isaiah. And he says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Take your eyes down to verse number six if you're in Isaiah chapter nine. Look what Matthew is showing us. See what Matthew is doing. He's identifying Jesus with the long-awaited Messiah. See verse 6? You know that, that famous like Christmas passage, okay? For unto us a child is born. I mean, it's all right there. Let's go there. You got ahead of me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Here's what we know. This is the one. Jesus is the one. He's sent to Galilee as a bright light. He's sent to Martinsburg, to Spring Mills. He's sent to West Virginia as the bright light. There is no other. There is no other coming. John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to see where, where it's explained that when he was arrested. See, Matthew is thematic. He already mentioned in chapter 4 that, that he's been arrested. But it's going to be explained later on. John the Baptist is there in a prison cell. He'll soon be brought out and had his head lopped off in some cruel little funny joke of Herod's. But before he goes to his death, he asks, he asks, sends men to Jesus and asks them, ask them to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? Listen, folks. Jesus' answer to John is the same answer to us. There is no other there is no way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. There is no, under, there's no name under heaven by which men may be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. It's the same Messiah today as it was in the year 30, as the same as it was in the year 740 B.C. It's the same Messiah. And the world needs him. So we've got to be aligned with God's word. 
We need to be willing to change, to shift. Jesus was willing to move. He was willing to go to a different spot. He, was, he, was, he withdrew from Jerusalem, went to Galilee, did ministry there. He's going back to Jerusalem very shortly later. He's all over the place, pointing the people to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. But one thing would not change. He was aligned with God's word. The message must remain the same. The, the, the means and the method and the location can change, but the message remains the same. We must be aligned with God's word. One more final point. So when we go, wherever we go, and by we, I mean you and me, When you go, wherever you go, shine light. Shine light. Look at the passage. Galilee of the Gentiles. Lost people. That's what that means. Pagan people. Godless people. Sinners. Sinners. Tax collectors. Prostitutes. The nasty of the nasty. The worst you can think of. The there. The right there around the the metropolis. It was actually called the Decapolis. Ten cities that surrounded Sea of Galilee. A stench pit of sin. Dark. Lost. Captive. The people dwelling in darkness... They've seen a great light. I love the verb tense. They've seen. They've seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Oh, what beauty this is. Broken people reached. Zacchaeus is there. A buddy of Matthew. A pal of Matthew, a fellow tax collector, a ruler of tax. He's not just one of those dirty, rotten IRS guys. He's a boss of those IRS guys. He comes to, Jesus comes to town, bumps into Zacchaeus, converted, brand new man. Mm. The gospel is powerful. The light is real. It is strong. You don't have to convince someone to get saved. You don't have to convince your buddy at work that God's the only way. You don't have to, you don't have to convince him the Bible is true. You don't have to convince him about anything about creation and evolution or about when the rapture will occur or, or any of that stuff. Point him to Jesus. Take him to the cross. He'll convert them and he'll let them see the truth. He will work on their hearts. Don't deal with Supreme Court justices and Republicans and Democrats. Leave all that garbage to the pagans. You tell them about Jesus. His spirit will come and live in them. And he'll change them. Little by little. You, helpless. Can't change a soul. You don't believe me? Come up here and try to convince me the Bible isn't true. I dare you. Bring it on. You ain't got a chance. You know why? Not because I know the Bible. Because I got God's spirit. You don't have to convince the world. You just got to shine the light. You're just a flashlight holder. You're just a lantern boy. That's all you are. 
is point to Jesus. From that time on, verse 17, Jesus began to preach. It's interesting. We are a year and maybe a year and a half into Jesus' earthly ministry, and now he starts to preach. It's like, Jesus, what have you been doing a year, for a year and a half? Come on, dude, what's been doing? Don't worry. He's been investing in James and John and Peter and Andrew and Philip. And they're going to set the world on fire because they're going to shine the light. Just to wrap up, I knew I was going to be long on talk and short on time. So I wrote down a couple of things I wanted to say at the end because I knew I wouldn't have time. Here's what they are. Okay, life well lived is impossible without the Spirit. It's impossible without the Spirit. You're trying to live your life as an unsaved man? Give it up, please. You're just beating your head against a rock wall. Life well lived is impossible without the Spirit. You ain't got a chance. You're going to sin and hurt and damage and break everyone around you more and more and more. So just turn to Jesus already and come to him. He wants to change you. Secondly, listen, embrace change. Get over it, Felix. Put your footlocker away with all your OCD egg cartons. Seriously, get rid of them. Embrace change. Living organisms, or living organisms change. The dinosaurs didn't change. Uh, look there. They're dead. Okay? So embrace change. But God's word keeps change balanced. See? God's word keeps change balanced. And just know that the world needs what you have. Lost, lost, lost people need what we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your gospel, for the fact that you have changed men and women like us. Boys and girls, teenagers, old men, old women, young, it doesn't matter, God. You're ready to change. You're ready to redeem. You're ready to bring your grace pouring into people's lives. Father, I pray that we'd be so sensitive to your spirit that we would hear you call and respond. Let us be that kind of sheep, that kind of sheep who hear you and go. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.